All right, here is episode six of the Main Polis podcast, and this is part two of the podcast New England Clean Energy Connect analysis. In part one, I did my best to explain how the New England grid operates, how New England's wholesale electricity markets work, and what's happening in Massachusetts to justify this project. Today, I'll be focusing on the energy companies pushing for this project, but first, a couple of quick show notes. First off, you can officially subscribe to the Main Pulse podcast on either Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts now, and I'm not sure if there are any other podcast catchers that have it yet. Second, I've gone back to a couple of past episodes to try and fix some audio issues, make it a bit more bearable, specifically episode 2, Maine's November 3rd election results shakedown, that one got an adjustment, and also episode 3, November election follow-up, Finding Biden's Base. The audio was really trash on that one. The episode was about, uh, I used AP projections to see where Biden's surge might have come from, and then looked at party enrollment numbers from the past four years to see what's changed there. And I decided that the part about party enrollment changes is important enough to justify just recording the whole thing. It's very likely I'll be referring back to it at some point, and I want folks to be able to go back and check it out. It's nearly a word-for-word copy of what was up before, it just, it's a lot clearer now. And I also added a few more show sources on the episodes page that you can find at themainpolis.com. Okay, let's get into it. Today, I'll be going over the five companies pushing for the Clean Energy Connect project. So, National Grid, Eversource, and Unitel, those are the three Massachusetts distribution companies that, as I explained in part one, are required by state law to enter into long-term purchase agreements with Hydro-Quebec. I'll also go over Hydro-Quebec's origin story, as well as the company partnered with Hydro-Quebec to transmit hydroelectricity across Maine and into southern New England, our very own Central Maine Power. Okay, so let's start with Central Maine Power. These guys have been in the game a long time. They started off in 1899 as the Oakland Electric Company. They changed the name to Central Maine Power in 1910, and for basically 90 years, grew in both their transmission capacity and their generating capacity, until they effectively became a regional energy monopoly. This changed in 1999 when legislation was passed that basically said to these regional energy monopolies, you know, you got to choose. You can't control the generating stations and the transmission lines. So CMP decided to sell off their generating stations and focus on distribution. So now they're just responsible for the lines getting the juice safely from where it's being generated to your house or business. Now, around the same time legislation was starting to break up these regional energy monopolies, Central Maine Power ended up being purchased by New York's Energy East for $957 million. And this was at a time when a lot of energy companies were restructuring and consolidating. And this was because companies like CMP and Energy East who was also forced to sell off generating stations, getting too powerful, and state legislators responding with new regulations. Now, in 2008, Energy East was bought out by the Spanish energy company Iberdrola. Iberdrola started in 1992, when a couple of other Spanish energy companies merged, and up until the Energy East purchased, they had basically been focused on Europe's energy market. So... They let Central Maine Power keep its name, but they renamed the Energy East subsidiary to Iberdrola USA. 
which was renamed again in 2015 to Avangrid after Iberdrola took over UIL Holdings and merged it with Iberdrola USA. Now, Avangrid, which is still owned by Iberdrola, has a few other subsidiaries in the Northeast, and they all pretty much do the same thing, and that's distribute energy. In some cases, it's like CMP, and they're distributing electricity to customers. But in other cases, it's like main natural gas, and they're distributing natural gas to customers. And then, in other examples, like New York State Electric and Gas, it's both. There's also Southern Connecticut Gas, Connecticut Natural Gas, Berkshire Gas Company, Rochester Gas and Electric, the United Illuminating Company, they're all retail energy distribution companies, and all of them are Avangrid controlled. And actually, they'd be delivering to industrial customers as well. So, like for example, natural gas power generating stations, which is the number one use for natural gas in New England. It's used to make electricity. In fact, half of all of New England's generating capacity comes from natural gas fire generators. Now, there is actually one subsidiary that falls outside of that energy distribution box, and that's Avangrid Renewables. This subsidiary doesn't deliver electricity, they generate it. Avangrid Renewables owns a bunch of wind farms all across the country, including three right here in New England, the Lempster Wind Farm and the Groton Wind Power Project, those two are in New Hampshire, and they also have the Hoosack Wind Power Project in Western Mass. It looks like they're trying to break into some offshore wind projects as well, but I don't think anything like that is feeding the New England grid like those three are. And just a couple more things about Iberdrola. While they are a publicly traded company, two of their biggest stockholders are Qatar Investment Authority and BlackRock Inc. Now, the one from Qatar is basically the investment wing for the country of Qatar, and they are not without some controversy. British media for a time were accusing the investment fund of funneling money to terrorist groups, and their ties to Qatar Islamic Bank, which comes with its own set of controversies, didn't help. Now, just to put out the breadth of projects that the Qatar Investment Authority are involved in, they own about 14% of Volkswagen, 20% of London's Heathrow Airport, they have investments in China, and own properties all through New York City. And they've recently pumped $650 million into a Washington, D.C. mixed-use development project. BlackRock, Inc., the other major stockholder of Iberdrola, is based out of New York City. These guys have been called, quote, the world's largest shadow bank. That was definitely a term I had to look up, and rather than try to explain it, I'm just going to use a quote from the former U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke. Uh, and this is from 2013. Quote, shadow banking, as usually defined, comprises a diverse set of institutions and markets that, collectively, carry out traditional banking functions, but do so outside or in ways only loosely linked to the traditional system of regulated depository institutions, end quote. So, they're like other banks, except that other banks are banks. BlackRock has also seen stakeholder meetings protested for being the largest investor of weapons manufacturing, as well as from environmental groups for its massive oil and gas holdings, which was estimated to have been responsible for like 
30% of total energy-related emissions in 2017. Okay, so that was central main power. Let's take a look at the three southern New England distribution companies that have contracts to buy power from Hydro-Quebec through the New England Clean Energy Connect project. And I guess I'll start with Eversource. Eversource is also the result of a bunch of different mergers. And just like CMP and Energy East, some of those mergers followed regulations forcing them to choose between either generating electricity or distributing electricity. And like CMP, they went with distribution. Eversource is headquartered out of Hartford and Boston, and it's probably the largest energy distribution company in New England at this point. They got over 3 million electric customers spread across most of New Hampshire, a large part of Western Mass, the Boston Metro, the Cape, and pretty much all of Connecticut. They also own pipelines, and between Eastern Mass and Connecticut, provide gas to over a half million customers. And like Avangrid, they also own some renewable energy projects, specifically 22 different solar generation facilities all across Massachusetts. Additionally, they, in a partnership with Hydro-Quebec, was Mass's first choice for their clean energy standard contract. If you listen to the previous podcast, you may remember the Northern Pass, a plan to deliver hydroelectric energy from Quebec to Massachusetts through the New Hampshire White Mountains, a plan that was rejected by New Hampshire regulators. Well, had that gone through, it would have been Eversource, not Central Maine Power, building a transmission corridor through northern New England to Massachusetts. Alright, now, something else worth knowing about Eversource is that they and CMP's Avangrid were named in a class action lawsuit back in November of 2017. The suit argued that between 2013 to 2016, Eversource and Avangrid created a, quote, unique monopoly, resulting in customers in all six New England states paying 20% more than they should have. A lot of what was being claimed came from a report from the Environmental Defense Fund, and both Avangrid and Eversource denied it wholeheartedly. But the accusations were enough to spark a FERC investigation, the federal regulatory agency in charge of energy, so it was at least taken somewhat seriously. Now, if you're wondering how this price fix could have been possible, allow me to explain, because it has a lot to do with subsidiaries and who owns what. Like I talked about in the last podcast, Massachusetts is entirely dependent upon imported natural gas through pipelines in order to not just heat themselves, but power themselves using massive quantities of natural gas to generate electricity for the New England grid. The main route for natural gas into southern New England is through the Algonquin Pipeline, and a subsidiary of Eversource happens to own a 40% stake in the company that owns that pipeline. Okay, now, separate from that are the gas supply companies, many of which are subsidiaries of either Eversource or Avangrid, These are companies like CMP, except that they distribute natural gas. So these gas distribution companies contact the pipeline company and lets them know how much space within the pipeline that they'll need reserved for the following day. And there's a few different gas supply companies, but without question, Avangrid and Eversource subsidiaries take up the bulk of the space in the Algonquin pipeline. And a big part of that is because regulations favor them over smaller companies with less customers. They get to be first in line for pipeline space, 
And it's set up that way because a disruption to their customers would have a more dramatic effect on the region than if a smaller upstart can't get pipeline space. So what these Eversource and Avangrid subsidiaries are accused of doing is over-reserving space on that pipeline and then releasing that space back onto the market only after it was too late in the day for smaller gas supply companies to take advantage. The suit argued that this created an artificial restriction on the flow of natural gas to New England, causing the price of gas to go up. But it doesn't stop there. These gas supply subsidiaries then turn around and sell that inflated price gas to residents, businesses, and for industrial purposes, specifically for generating electricity for the New England grid. And because around half of New England's electrical needs come from burning natural gas, this would have absolutely affected electricity prices across the region, especially in Massachusetts, where two-thirds of their electrical demand comes from natural gas alone. So, after the gas is turned into electricity, different Eversource and Avangrid subsidiaries, like CMP for example, then carry and sell the electricity that costs more to make because the price of gas was so high, to customers all across New England. The suit argues that, in addition to the price manipulation, those same subsidiaries responsible for supplying gas and electric then use the artificially high price to justify the necessity for further pipeline and transmission corridor projects that they would then inevitably own and control. And I'm going to add one more layer to this onion. Remember how both these companies had subsidiaries that own and operate renewable energy facilities? Avangrid owns a few wind farms in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, and Eversource owns some solar facilities. Remember that? Well, that comes into play here. You see, once the price of gas went up, which caused the price of electricity from gas to go up, which caused the price of electricity to go up over the entire region, the renewable energy facilities that Avangrid and Eversource own were able to charge more for the electricity they generate and supply to the grid. Alright, so a Boston federal judge ends up dismissing the case in September of 2018, basically saying that they weren't convinced the courts had jurisdiction over the matter because natural gas prices were federally regulated. It wouldn't have helped that the agency that did have jurisdiction, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, yeah, their investigation didn't turn up anything illegal and probably put some holes in that Environmental Defense Fund's report that started the whole thing. So, I know that the hustle might seem obvious, but what they did, and are continuing to do, isn't illegal and follows all regulatory guidelines. And I think both companies use this as evidence of no wrongdoing. But, and this is a slight digression, I think a good argument could be made that maybe it's time to revisit some of those regulations. Because it's starting to look like, as long as they add some corporate layering and an interstate border or two, Distribution companies are getting involved in generation again, with expected results. Alright, so next we got National Grid US. This company was formed in 2000 when the London-based National Grid PLC bought out the New England electric system. And this was another of those companies with humble beginnings dating back to the mid-1800s, but by the late 1990s had become a monopoly and was being forced to sell off its generation facilities and shift toward distribution only. The New England electric system had started with hydroelectric facilities and steam power generators, but expanded into coal, oil, and natural gas generators through the 20th century, and they even had interest in nuclear power projects at one point. 
But looking at the timeline of events, it's pretty clear New England Electric Systems saw the legislative writing on the wall relatively early. They were one of the first to really start restructuring, selling off their ability to generate electricity, and choosing to focus on distribution only. And so, in the midst of that shift, in comes National Grid. Now, the interesting thing to me about National Grid when we're comparing energy company histories is that they didn't start as a private company that got too powerful and had to be regulated into either distribution or generation. No, they were part of Great Britain's state-owned energy company that had been privatized in 1990. Its generating facilities were bundled and sold off into three different companies, and the job of distribution for England, Wales, and Scotland, that was spun off to the newly formed National Grid PLC. So... Ten years later, National Grid buys out the New England Electric System and renames it National Grid U.S. And in that same year, buys out Eastern Utilities Association and Niagara Mohawk Holdings, then merges both of them into National Grid U.S. and almost overnight becomes one of the largest distributors of electric and gas on the eastern seaboard. Their total number of customers in the region has been difficult to nail down, One document I found mentions 20 million customers in New York, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. I think we should assume the bulk of those are in New York, and many might be getting counted twice if National Grid U.S. is their electric company and their gas company. Another site puts the number of just New England customers at around 3.5 million. That seems a little closer to reality, but it's not clear to me if that included gas customers or not. Okay, so that's National Grid. We've already covered Eversource, that just leaves Unitel. And I don't really have as much on them. Probably the smallest of the three is Unitel. They started in 1984, but date their roots all the way to 1849 with the Portland Gaslight Company. Unitel is basically the result of maybe a half dozen different central New England power companies merging over a series of years. They're headquartered out of Hampton, New Hampshire, and... Some of you in southern Maine might know Unitel as the gas company. Well, it turns out they're also the electric company for parts of southern New Hampshire and a portion of northeast Massachusetts. Alright, so that covers who's buying the power, who's transmitting the power. Now it's time to deal with who's generating the power. Hydro-Quebec. Hydro-Quebec's origin story sounds pretty similar to the energy companies in New England I just went over. Back around the latter half of the 19th century, the province of Quebec had something like 80 different generating companies spring up, mainly hydroelectric, with each building their own distribution networks. Many of them specifically built to power industry, like paper mills, for example. But by the 1920s, dozens of these private companies had merged into a handful or so, and of those, The largest of these vertically integrated energy companies, certainly the most prominent, or notorious depending on your perspective, was the Montreal Light, Heat, and Power Company. If you wanted to stay warm with the lights on in or around Montreal, you were dealing with these guys. And that's assuming that they had any infrastructure in your community, which in many cases, they did not. And that ends up being one of the major complaints against Montreal Light, Heat, and Power, was that they were not expanding into more rural areas of the province, and these communities were being left behind economically. So, we got some regions falling behind economically, 
And then the areas that do have service, they're complaining of rate hikes and service issues. Some, including politicians, pointed at Montreal light heat and power ownership and its higher-ups as the problem. Things get so bad that, through the 1930s, Quebec's provincial government decided to get directly involved. So, they form a commission and conduct an investigation, and what comes out of that are a series of policy recommendations designed to force transparency in how Montreal light, heat, and power conduct themselves financially. They wanted to look at their books. But by the 1940s, Quebec's government had decided that the regulations hadn't been enough, that the company was continuing to abuse its power as monopoly within the province, and that the solution was a full government takeover of the region's energy sector. And so, on April 14th, 1944, they did just that. They passed legislation creating the Quebec Hydro-Electric Commission, a.k.a. Hydro-Quebec, and granted this new province-controlled corporation a complete monopoly on the generation, distribution, and transmission of electricity in and around Montreal. So, overnight, Montreal Light, Heat, and Power had all their customers taken away and handed over to Hydro-Quebec. The province of Quebec then takes out a massive bank loan, and Montreal Light, Heat, and Power are forced to sell all their assets to the newly formed Hydro-Quebec. I wasn't able to figure out exactly what they paid, but I do know that by 1947, the province had approved a $112 million bond issue to pay off the private loan the province had taken out. So, maybe around $100 million before interest? And not all of that was paid out right away, either. A legal battle broke out between the province and at least two subsidiaries of Montreal Light, Heat, and Power, and those shareholders weren't compensated until 1953. Alright, I think I'm going to end here for today. I've got more on Hydro-Quebec and what its generating capacity actually looks like and its impact on the environment, but rather than start digging into all of that and seeing where it takes us, I'm going to stop here for today. Like I mentioned at the start, the podcast can now be found on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, so you can subscribe to the show there. I'm still pulling some things together for what will probably be the last part in this series, looking at the New England Clean Energy Project, but there are a couple of other things I'm pulling together too, so we'll see which one I get done first. Alright, that's all I got. Thanks for listening.